When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis on all the topics you're talking about in football. I'm Ian McGarry and with me as always is Duncan Castles. It's Wednesday, which means, of course, it's your questions answered. And again, thank you very much for sending them in. There's a couple of great topics to discuss. We've had lots of um, various comments and questions regarding um, Arsenal this week. So we're going to start with a bit of news. Um, If you remember on last week's pod, we told you that some of the players were petitioning um, the Arsenal executives regarding Unai Emery, making complaints with regards to his management style, tactics, etc., etc., now, we can bring you more news on the back of, of course, the sacking of Granit Xhaka as captain and the subsequent appointment of Pierre-Emerick uh, Aubameyang in his place. And that is that the players and sources close to the players and certainly in the dressing room are telling us that this has been seen as a fairly desperate move by Emery to try and re-establish some kind of authority and also credibility with the fans who, of course, uh, were so angry at the way that Xhaka responded to being substituted last weekend, which caused this mess. Uh, it's being seen, interpreted as well, uh, again, via sources close to the dressing room, um, that uh, Emery is trying to please the people who pay him by trying to show them that he does have a, let's just say, hard side to him. He's not this soft centre who can be manipulated by other players, etc., by players in his dressing room. But I think it's going to fall on its face because one uh, comment that was made um, was that they could, the players themselves could smell fear in Emery uh, in the wake of the Xhaka um, incident and his subsequent sacking. Xhaka is a very popular member of the Arsenal dressing room. And remember, he was elected on a vote of the first-team squad. Now, of course, Emery has completely reversed, Duncan, that uh, democratic process. Again, a U-turn of that magnitude does not suggest a man uh, who has authority or indeed any kind of mandate um, within even his own workplace. And uh, and instead, he's appointed Aubameyang uh, unilaterally. What does that say to you, Duncan, about the state of relations between Arsenal players and their manager. I think it's interesting that when Emery's been quizzed on the topic of Jacka and leaving him out of, of squads recently, he, he's wanted to avoid that question. He, he seems to be trying to push away from talking about it in detail and, um, and focus on results um, and performances. Um, he's definitely under... Um, severe pressure at the moment. He has difficult games coming up. He's playing um, Vitoria Guimaraes um, in Portugal in his next Europa League game um, after a difficult uh, fixture with them in London. He has Leicester City away 
coming up at the weekend um, with Leicester obviously on a, on a remarkable run of form and with a number of Arsenal supporters arguing that Brendan Rodgers should have been the man Arsenal appointed um, when they changed uh, the coach from Arsene Wenger and, and selected Emery uh, and, uh, and a number of Arsenal supporters arguing that Arsenal should now go and try and recruit Brendan Rodgers as, a, as an immediate replacement for um, Unai Emery, as difficult as that would probably um, prove to be. Um, and then Southampton um, at home after the international break, um, if he gets to that stage. Now, um, Arsenal's official position on uh, the matter of changing coach and as I was briefed on this earlier this week is that we are not looking for a new coach and that's according to um, an Arsenal spokesperson. Um, the word in football is very different and um, the, uh, the, the very um, well uh, sourced and received information we have is that Arsenal are indeed uh, preparing the ground in case they have to uh, change Emery either during the season or at the end of the season when his current contract expires. They have an option to extend his contract, but the, the, the suggestions are that they do not intend to um, extend his contract regardless of what happens. The background, of course, is that Arsenal have invested a lot of money uh, in their squad this uh, past summer. Um, they feel that they've provided Emery with the tools necessary to get the team in, back into the Champions League for the first time after a th three-season break. They need to be there for sporting purposes um, to I can't think, calm the fans down about the, the ownership of the, the Kroenke family um, and to show that they can compete at the top level of the game again. Um, they, they say their goal is to be competitive for the Premier League. At present, they're clearly a long way off Manchester City and Liverpool. Their argument is they need to be in the Champions League to get the resources from the Champions League to turn them into competitors for those two clubs. Um, financially, they, they definitely need the money. If you go through Arsenal's books, they're not. Um, they don't. The, the the balance sheet doesn't look very clever after three years without. Uh, Champions League football. They have invested a lot uh, in stage payments and players this summer. So that extra revenue you get from being in Champions League is important to them. And I think that all of these things uh, come in to put additional pressure on Unai Emery at a time when, as you say, the, the players are unimpressed. Um, they've been petitioning the board over his uh, management. Um, you have this language problem, which has been self-evident um, from his uh, media appearances from the start at Arsenal and, and continuing to a stage where he, he still cannot communicate his ideas properly. And the, the feeling is that that's a significant handicap for a, a coach who is detailed, um, who spends a lot of time preparing uh, plans, specific plans for opponents, um, giving specific tactical advice for particular games. And um, as we've said before, it's very hard to do that um, in the English game if you don't have um, sufficient command of the language to communicate those ideas quickly and efficiently um, and in a way that, that um, motivates your players to follow them.
it's certainly a very difficult situation for any manager, Duncan, when um, the, the fans are not impressed with the, 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 what they're seeing on the pitch. When the players in the dressing room are not convinced by him tactically or game plans or team selections, and of course now this um, row with Granit Xhaka, uh, it seems to me to be a situation which is being stretched uh, almost to piano wire-like tension um, between the different uh, sections of the club, i.e. you've got the management of the club who are looking down at results and looking at the manager and scrutinising them. You've got the fans who are booing uh, in the stadium. Um, I saw one uh, journalist, I think it was Oliver Holt from the Mail on Sunday, describing the atmosphere of the Emirates as the most toxic in England last weekend um, in relation to what happened with the Jaka substitution incident. So, um, so I think it's... It's a, it's a situation which needs to be certainly addressed in a positive way or resolved by the removal of the manager. Uh, I think that's something, given how basically how little we're into the season right now as well, Duncan, um, this is something which is going to run and run. I just can't see there being a very uh, quick response or a quick resolution to this, um, unless, of course, they decide to take Emery out of the equation. Um, well, look, I, I think Unai Emery is a capable coach. He's demonstrated that at times at Arsenal. He's demonstrated it for sure in his past career. Very good uh, track record at Sevilla, particularly in European competition. He he got into trouble at Paris Saint-Germain, and, and it's interesting to note the reasons why he got into trouble there, and that, that was he couldn't handle the dressing room. That that very toxic dressing room, I mean, it is one of the, probably one of the hardest clubs two-man manage in European football would prove too much for him and, and he came all into almost immediate conflict with their um, biggest investment, Neymar, and he was not able to resolve it and that's why they dispense with him. You have to say from the management perspective at Arsenal, he's taken a couple of really big gambles in the sense that he has effectively ostracised Mesut Ozil who is the, the club's most expensive player in terms of salary um, and their most creative player uh, when used the right way. So to to sideline a player like that is, is a big, big call um, and one that you need to get right. Otherwise, the, the people who, who um, pay your salary will start ask, asking questions about why um, a player of such talent with so much money invested in him, who is refusing to leave, um, isn't being used. And, and yes, I think you can say that the Jaka um, issue is also one that's self-generated and that Emery took this decision to appoint a captain by a player's vote which is an unusual thing to do. Um, in some ways, it has an appeal. Um, there's a, you know, the, the, there is a, a logic to it. If you don't think there's a clear captain within your um, group, uh, you there and ask the players to decide, and then you should get buy-in from the players on that decision. But you also run the risk of appointing someone who. Um, is not as popular with the fans as you would like a captain to be and gets into the situation that Jack has got himself into, um, which has caused Emery a huge headache. So um, those kind of decisions can always come back to hurt you as a football manager. I would say this, Duncan, that um, if I were head coach at Arsenal or any other Premier League club and I decided to take a vote uh, amongst my players 
uh, a, let's say it's a 25-man squad, one vote per player, the ideal response to me would have been 25 different names. <laughs> uh, I, I'm being serious. I would, I, I would hope that every single player in my squad would see themselves as a captain. Um, maybe not the young players, but it, it would have been, you know, I'd have been disappointed to get a, a very clear uh, result because as far as I was told, you, you were allowed to vote for yourself. So, you know, I, anyway, that's an aside. Uh, maybe that says a lot about the lack of leadership at Arsenal as much as anything else. Now, uh, lots of talk about Tuesday night's um, incredible Champions League match at Stamford Bridge between Chelsea and Ajax, where, of course, Ajax were 4-1 up at one point. Uh, Chelsea drew it back to 4-4. In particular, Duncan, the performance of Hakim Zayek, uh, who, um, let's just say, it looked like a, a, a sort of some kind of genius when it came to those um, arcing cross balls, which caused so many problems uh, for Kepa Arzabalaga uh, in Chelsea's goal. Um, you've got an interesting story about um, how uh, he was a player very much recommended to Tottenham Hotspur. Yeah, I just um, I had a chat with a, a friend um, who works at Ajax after that match. Um, and one of, one of the things I was asking was, uh, did, did Ziyech in, intend uh, to uh, to put the ball directly in the net from that um, free kick right by the byline? He said, absolutely, of course he did. And uh, he, he was looking to exploit Kepa's lack of height and uh, weaknesses they'd seen in the way Kepa positioned himself at set pieces. Um, before the game, and, and he has the capability to do that kind of thing, that he's that good a player. Um, yes, uh, he also mentioned um, that uh, Raphael van der Vaart had been in touch with Daniel Levy recently, had called Daniel Levy and, uh, and suggested to him that his next signing for Tottenham should be Ziyech, um, that he needed to get him to the Premier League as quickly as possible and that he wanted to see him in a, in a Tottenham shirt rather than playing for um, one of the other teams um, in the Premier League. I think um, we will see Ziyech leave Ajax um, in one of the next two transfer windows. Um, he's 26, so he is at that period where Ajax will sell if the numbers are right, um, even though he's such an um, influential player for him. His numbers this season in terms of performance are exceptional. He's, got five goals and seven assists in 11 games in the, the Dutch league. Um, four assists and one goal in four games in the Champions League has been involved in 50% of, of their goals um, so far in that competition. I think very unfortunate not to be credited with the goal um, uh, and, and it to be given to Kepo because it, it came off Kepo's face. Um, I think that's one of those circumstances where the technicality of own goal rules really doesn't favour the player who who had uh, invented and created and made that goal with his skill, um, and I think they heard Robin van Persie saying exactly that after the match. Who, who had a huge amount of respect for Ziyech's skill. Um, Ajax put him on a new contract in August. Um, that runs until 2022. I'm told that the release clause in, involved in that contract is in the region of 80 million euros. Um, so that gives you an idea of how much Ajax believe they can get for him. Um, they'll be hoping they can get a, a bidding war going on in the same way as they got with Frankie de Jong and um, Matthias de Licht. Uh, so they get up to the top 
end of that range when they do sell the player. Um, I think it's also interesting that they didn't manage um, to find um, a top-level buyer in the summer. I think the, the, the best offer they got was from Sevilla, which Ziyech turned down because he felt that um, it wasn't a step up on Ajax and he preferred to remain at Ajax and wait for one of the top clubs to um, push the button and uh, to, to bring him to him. So definitely a situation to pay attention to um, through the rest of this season and, uh, and see which of the, the clubs with serious money in Europe decide to go for a player of, of such creativity and, uh, and goal-scoring ability. And I know that the uh, referee's performance at Stamford Bridge on Tuesday night also caught your eye. Interesting that little line uh, you got from a friend in Italy regarding um, the referee and what he'd been doing last weekend. Yeah, this is Gianluca Rocchi who, who um, managed to turn that game on its head with the score at 4-2 um, by sending off two Ajax players for one incident on the pitch. Um, a penalty given against Feltman, which um, I just do not see how it could have been um, uh, decided to be a penalty given that Feltman had his hand right by his body uh, when it was struck at pace um, for, from a Chelsea shot. That followed uh, Rocky playing advantage after Daly Blind had fouled a Chelsea player, having been fouled by Christian Pulisic himself and being knocked off balance and then diving in to a tackle. Um, so the referee managed to miss the original foul, um, then booked Blind after... Uh, giving a penalty, um, re- resulting in Blunt being sent off, booked Veltman for his handball, resulting in Veltman being sent off, and uh, took Ajax down to nine players uh, and gave Chelsea a goal um, when Ajax basically appeared to have the game won. Um, I've never seen anything like that in, in football before. Um, I, so I was asking our, um, our friend um, Aurelio Capaldi, um, about Rocky and what his uh, refereeing was like in Italy. And he said he's, uh, he's very highly regarded, but uh, it's something of a mystery as to why he's so highly regarded and told me in uh, the Roma-Napoli um, Serie A match at the weekend, he uh, was involved in two controversial incidents. He stopped the match for two minutes because the Roma fans were... Um, making derogatory chants about Napoli and uh, the Neapolitans, um, but also later denied um, Napoli a penalty um, for a challenge on Irving Lozano. And Napoli's captain, Lorenzo Insigne, um, asked uh, Rocky why he hadn't um, consulted, uh, why VR hadn't been involved in, in, in uh, assessing whether a penalty should have been given or not. And apparently Rocky's response to Insigne was, you made more mistakes than me on the pitch, which is a quite uh, astounding thing for a referee to respond to a player with. Um, and uh, it seems he's uh, something of the Mark Clattenburg of uh, Italian refereeing. Clattenburg-esque, that's all I would say about that. I, I wonder if, if he's going to... They might just start calling John Luca Clattenburg actually um, from now on. It would be good if they did. I'm sure. I'm sure our friend Mark Clattenburg would be very, very impressed, and to take that as a compliment as well. Um, maybe, maybe, maybe Rocky will get some tattoos uh, of these matches, and maybe we'll have one of Stamford Bridge done to commemorate <laughs> his, his remarkable decision making in in this Champions League game. 
I wonder if um, Tom of Rebels got one of that game against Barcelona. He denied Chelsea four blatant penalties. Uh, we're going to move on to a question by a big fan of the podcast, Mr. KJ Banks. He's at, at Banks. He's very straight to the point, Duncan, and we like straight to the point on the pod. Everton, discuss question mark, relegation fodder, dead man, dead man walking at the helm. Well, they're certainly in a lot of trouble, Duncan. Some bad results in recent weeks, and then you know a 96th minute equaliser, of course, in the Tottenham game that was marred by the injured Andre Gomez last Sunday. How long do you think will Everton um, stay with Marco Silva and uh, the way things are going, or, or can you see the the need, or indeed the necessity for change, uh, sooner rather than later? Well, look, we've talked about this in recent podcasts. Um, Everton do not want to dismiss Marco Silva. They're trying to find a way not to do it. Um, they've gone through so many managers in the the period in which the, the Farhad Mushiri fronted takeover has been in place. They've spent so much money on players. Um, I'm just looking at the details today in there. Um, they, according to the CIES figures, they are 11th in Europe in terms of the, the total uh, transfer fee commitment cost of their squad, their current squad. So 486 million euros of transfer fees to build their current squad, which is the sixth highest um, uh, investment in the Premier League, um, which is remarkable given how far down the Premier League they are and how far away they are from, from European competition, which of course is the goal of, of the current ownership. Um, Marco Silva was supposed to be the man who turned that around. Um, obviously they went to great lengths to hire him from Watford, caused big problems with Watford in the process, ended up appointing him after uh, Watford had sacked Silva, yet still had to pay compensation to Watford um, for their um, illegal approach to Silva while he was employed by them. So you can understand why they would like to see it um, work with Silva and why there's a reluctance to change. Um, I don't think the relegation fodder, um, they are uh, just three points above the relegation zone at present um, and they are in, in 17th place. Um but there's, there's kind of a long tail of teams. Um, you go up to Manchester United in 10th uh, place uh, on, on 11 to 13 points. So it, one weekend of results uh, switching one way or another could, could see Everton go um, relatively high up the division in terms of talking about them being relegation fodder. Um, the, his point average as Everton manager, is very poor. It's the lowest since Walter Smith. But even if you extrapolate out from his average of 1.33 points per Premier League game um, across the rest of the season, 27 games left, that would you would expect that to be enough uh, to keep them in the division. But that's not really the question here. And I, and I think this is the issue for Marco Silva is... Um, Everton will probably know they're not going to get European football this season and they can be fairly confident they're not going to get relegated because their squad is good enough uh, to stay up. So do you stick with a manager who 
in which there are definite problems behind the scenes. I've been talking to people um, about what's going on there and they suggest that he has separated himself off from the club, him and his coaching staff, in a way that uh, shows a, a lack of understanding of the political nature of Everton, where you have Farhad Mashiri fronting the, the money um, that, uh, that bought Everton a few years ago. You have Bill Kenwright, still a powerful force within the club. You've got Marcel Brands as the director of football with a, with a significant say in what is done in recruitment. And remember, Marco Silva very pointedly complained about the recruitment that was, that was made in the summer, the lack of a, a centre-back and the decision to sell Idrissa Gay, his best midfielder, to Paris Saint-Germain. Uh, you have Duncan Ferguson as, a, as an influential force in the dressing room uh, who is not entirely bought into Marco Silva's way of management. And there, there's a sense that he hasn't handled that well and he has alienated people within the club um, by the, the way he um, manages them and, uh, and deals with individuals on a day-by-day -day basis. So then you, you, you say to yourself, what... How are, how are Everton going to think about this? If they feel the manager uh, looks like being a mistake uh, and they might have to change him. And I know there are people close to the, the board who are preparing candidates um, in case they have to change the manager in the expectation that a decision will eventually be made that Marco Silva goes and a new manager comes in. And I know also that... Um, the representatives of various coaches interested in, in uh, taking over from Marco Silva have been making their availability clear to the club. Then you have, with this situation, you could say, let's find our next coach. We got it wrong with the Marco Silva appointment, but we want to go down a similar line. We want to bring someone in who can, who can get the best out of the squad and turn us into a team that can qualify for Europe. Um, why not use the rest of this season to bed him in? Uh, if we can get that man now, hire him, let him have uh, you know two-thirds of a Premier League season to get to know the club, to get to know the squad, to prepare a transfer plan for next season with the idea being that when you start the next season, you have the manager and the sporting director and the board all bought into a coherent plan to finally get the squad in a better state than it's been and, uh, and, and, and achieve what the money invested in the team um, should allow them to achieve. Now, that's not an easy thing because the, the big problem for Everton is the money has been spent spectacularly badly. They've made a huge number of mistakes. Um, guys like Morgan Schneiderland, um, uh, Wayne Rooney, who's who's gone from returning to Everton to going to the United States to to being caught for um, uh, for drinking on airplanes and and on his way back to Derby County uh, now, which shows you know just how much of a mistake Everton made in taking him off Manchester United's hands several um, seasons ago. Um, so, and this happens to football clubs when you put a lot of money into the squad and you put it into the wrong players, you get stuck with players you can't get rid of. And Everton have a lot of those uh, on their books on salaries way above uh, what their talents merited, um, who they just cannot move on because they can't find a club capable of paying their wages, um, who value the player at uh, at the level that their wages are on. So it's not an easy problem for Everton to solve. Um, but I do think 
the indicators from around the club are that unless Marco Silva can turn it round quickly um, and get the team on a, a, a run of good results, he will not be the manager of the club next season. Well, Duncan, I spoke to a couple of Everton sources um, in the wake of the 3-2 defeat by Brighton uh, a couple of weeks ago, and the general feeling was that of puzzlement. And I was told there's a lot of head-scratching going on in the boardroom uh, regarding why is it not working. Uh, clearly, they feel like they provided Marcus Silva with everything that he needed in terms of recruitment and in terms of resources, backup, coaching staff, Marcel Brands, etc., etc. Uh, it was mentioned to me that um, the fact that they uh, conceded defeat from 2-1 up, having come back from a goal down at the Amex, suggested that, yes, this manager and these players could get it right, albeit, OK, it was at Brighton, but Brighton are on a decent run as well and they're high on the table in Everton. Um, and then they conceded, uh, you know, two fairly defendable goals to lose the game 3-2 in the last 15 minutes. Um, now, I think when you talk about head-scratching, that's going to be a normal thing when you're in a situation like that over a course of 94 minutes. But I think the problem that Silva has is that he's in these situations too many times. Um, you know, that's the problem uh, for Everton as a football club, for him as a manager and for the players as well, is that they're simply not reaching the levels of performance that uh, is A, expected of them and B, well, as you just said, um, you've got players on very big money there, uh, which does not equate to the, the value of their, their talent. But and unfortunately, they're not even playing as well as they could do if they're playing at all. And that's a disastrous set of ingredients for any football club, especially one where a lot of money's been invested. You've got someone like Moshiri um, at the top of the pyramid who's held responsible by investors, etc., etc. We're all also asking the same questions. And guess what? He's the man that they want and need to sort it out. So uh, you know, I, I, I think big weekend uh, coming up because it's the, as we like to call it uh, on the transfer window, the inter November international break is the twilight zone for managers who may maybe, as uh, our listener, Mr. KJ Banks put it, could be dead men walking in that twilight zone. Uh, and of course, if money's going to be invested in the January window, then the board asks themselves, do we trust this manager to do it? And I suppose, theoretically, they could trust Marcel Brands to spend the money and simply give the players to Marco Silva. And that's going to put his back out even more because he's going to think, oh, right, great. So now I don't even get a say on recruitment because I'm just being given players. Well, clearly, I'm not trusted and therefore my days are numbered. Lots of problems to resolve to Everton. And um, I think, you know, as I said, <sighs> crucial weekend. But if he survives the twilight zone, I think he'll, he'll probably still be there after the new year, but if things don't continue to improve, I think you, what you said, Duncan, about a bedding-in period for a new coach um, is the most obvious uh, thing that Everton can do to try and turn around results ahead of a new season in 2020. Yeah, there's, one, there's one additional problem for Everton here which we haven't mentioned. Um, that is that the agent that has the trust of both Bill Kenwright and um, Farhad Mashiri at present, I'm told, is Kia Jurabshin. Um, therefore, the chances are Kia Jurabshin will, will be consulted or will be the person who recommends the new coach to Everton Football Club. And if you go and look at Kia Jurabshin's track record, 
um, with clubs who are not at the very top of the, the European game. Um, and his history with um, Queen's Park Rangers, uh, Manchester City early in the Abu Dhabi ownership, um, you will see a pattern of uh, Jurabshin uh, sending players and coaches to clubs um, who were not uh, did not perform to the level of uh, money that was invested in them and caused the club significant problems down the line. Well, we've got a, um, a lot of questions and, of course, a lot of uh, conversations going on uh, between all of you guys in the transfer window community regarding the recent um, visit of Manchester United uh, managing director and, of course, one of the Glazer brothers as well uh, to Saudi Arabia for the uh, future investment uh, event. Now, one of our uh, listeners, um, Jan Z, who is at Kratos de Peninga, has asked a very interesting um, sort of hypothetical question, Duncan. Um, but I like his phraseology. He says, could you analyse the, inverted quotes, day after tomorrow scenario? As in, what would happen if the Saudis take over? Um, well, <laughs> I suppose anything, given the amount of money they've got, Duncan. But um, if that, let's say that were to be... As uh, Janzi says, the day after tomorrow, what would you envisage the, the well, the major and first changes that would be made at the club? Well, look, the listener asks a, an interesting question here, and he mentions the relative lack of business expertise of the Saudis, which I think is a relevant point here. And I think you've got to break this down into um, two uh, different analyses. One is um, the efficiency of it as a business model and um, the implications uh, for football from having another uh, nation state owning a club. Um, we know uh, that the Glazers, uh, one of the Glazers, Avi Glazer, has been in Saudi Arabia recently, um, along with uh, Manchester United managing director Richard Arnold. That's a story we broke on the podcast um, two, three weeks before it happened. Um, those discussions involved uh, Arnold uh, spending time with uh, senior ministers in the Saudi Arabian government. He was even um, presented with a gift um, by one family of one of those ministers, the Abu Saq family of an Arabian racehorse, which I'm told is to be sent over to his stables in England um, subsequent to his visit to Saudi Arabia. Um, is that so allowed, Duncan? Is there not something slightly odd about that? <laughs> I guess you can gift uh, anyone anyone you like. Uh, but you, a, you should, a like, don't, look, don't look a gift horse in the mouth, as they say. It's well, not an Arabian one. <laughs> uh, I think there's certain Manchester United fans would be uh, looking gift horses in the mouth, given the history of of their own club and how the Glazer takeover came came about in the first place. But uh, that's a, a, a different matter. Um, did the Saudis do a good job of running Manchester United? Well, the model that they want to copy is the Abu Dhabi Qatar model of um, of buying a European football club, using it to sports wash the reputation, using it for um, soft power um, in European game for as a PR exercise so that 
Saudi Arabia becomes associated with Manchester United in the way that Abu Dhabi has been associated with Manchester City. They're following a model of one of their close allies um, in the Gulf. Um, you know, Abu Dhabi, they're basically in, involved in a, uh, a war in Yemen um, and a, a, a conflict with the Qataris um, uh, across uh, the Gulf at present. Um, they want to modernise the country. The leader um, of Saudi Arabia wants to follow that um, Abu Dhabi, Qatar model of uh, opening up the economy to a certain degree and opening up the country to a certain degree to um, to the rest of the world with a view to um, improving their uh, and broadening their economy away from the oil industry. So that's the strategy there. If they copy the Abu Dhabi model, which is uh, the Abu Dhabi implementation of the model, which has been very different from Qatar's implementation with PSG, then they will, um, they will basically be hands off. They will say, uh, we want to appoint the best people possible at every level at this club. We want the best players. We want the best coach. We want the best technical director, the best chief executive. We will give them the authority to be the best in their role uh, with the expectation that with our finances, they can turn the club into European champions. And that model has worked incredibly successfully for Manchester City. The only thing they haven't achieved is the Champions League trophy so far. They've made themselves the predominant force in English football. They have uh, made Manchester City the recipients of praise as being the best footballing team English football has ever seen. And and a big reason for that is they haven't tried to, to direct things themselves. The nominal owner of the club, Sheikh Mansour, has attended just one football match in over 10 years of his nominal ownership of Manchester City. Um, he's not involved in the running of the club. Um, the, the people who are on the board are effectively members of the Abu Dhabi government, um, but the people who make the key decisions in football areas are football specialists who are were selected for being the best of the best. And you saw the way they redesigned the club from top to bottom in, in a way that they could get Pep Guardiola to come and manage the team. Um, that model is obviously an effective one. You contrast that with PSG and uh, the Qatari ownership and um, the having a chief executive in, in uh, Nasser in charge, who has been described by a very um, important person in football as the second worst chief executive in football um, because of the decisions he makes and because of his uh, involvement and, and over um, and misjudged involvement in transfer decisions, uh, internal affairs of the club. Uh, second worst, by the way, to Ed Woodward at Manchester United, um, according to that individual. Um, so the potential for Manchester United under Saudi ownership is huge if they follow the Abu Dhabi strategy, because then you have a club that already generates um, the biggest oper operating profit in football. Um, once you strip out that massive debt service obligation that the Glazers placed upon the club through their leverage takeover, um, Manchester United create well over £100 million of operating profit every year. So a Saudi takeover would allow that debt to be paid off. There would be no debt servicing. There would almost certainly be no payments uh, going to the Saudi owners in terms of uh, 
dividends and, uh, and directors' salaries because they would not be required. Everything, all the money the club made could be channelled into the football team, which would give Manchester United an immense advantage over its competitors in England as long as it can get back into the Champions League and, and regain that revenue, which, of course, it should be able to do with the right um, leadership, the right people in place, better players and, uh, and more revenue to play with. Um, so it can work. It would. It's not. It doesn't have to be uh, even that intelligent to be better than what's going on at the moment, where there are problems from top to bottom at the club. But then you look at the other side of the equation. Is it good for Manchester United as a football club to have a nation state owning it? I I, I think, and this is a personal view, it would be a terrible thing. I don't. I think that um, nation states owning football club is good for the game. You've seen the problems that um, Abu Dhabi's ownership of Manchester City has caused with this um, rule breaking at multiple levels, um, evidence of of, uh, of uh, rigging of UEFA financial fair play rules, which they um, we await a decision from UEFA on on how they will be punished for that. UEFA's investigatory chamber is clear that Manchester City, under Abu Dhabi's ownership, broke the rules extensively and want to see Manchester City punished. Whether UEFA have the courage to do so, we wait and see. But that um, malign influence that nation states have had um, on the football market, I think is clear and obvious. Um, it's a big problem. And to have um, another state and a state which um, is objectionable um, on a human rights level uh, in multiple ways um, in charge of a football club, which is one of the most popular and um, dominant forces in uh, in the sport, in the world's most popular sports, on a completely different level to where Manchester City were uh, when they were purchased, where PSG were when they were purchased, and even where Manchester City and PSG are now after the, that billions of investment into them. Um, I think would be a very bad thing for football, and I think uh, personally, I think it's something Manchester United sh supporters should be worried about, and really they should hope. I understand why they want a change of ownership, uh, their current owners have not been good for the club, but I think they should hope that they can get a different form of ownership to um, the one that is being suggested as a, as the answer to the Glazer problem. It's interesting, Duncan, um, because what you're um, saying, and you said it's your own personal view, but it, there's a wider uh, consequence here as well, and that is, is it morally correct for a football club to be owned by a nation state, especially one whose rights, uh, human rights records are, um, well, pretty short, uh, you know, nothing but dreadful um, with regards uh, to, you know, their involvement in um, wars, as you've mentioned as well, as the fact that their own citizens um, don't have a lot of basic human rights that we um, enjoy as a matter of case, um, uh, certainly in Europe anyway. But my... I guess my point about that would be, um, well, football seems to be quite self-righteous about things like racism um, and any kind of discrimination with regards to LGBT issues, et cetera, et cetera. With regards to the moral high ground, I think football lifted its uh, skirt a long time ago. <laughs> and uh, I, don't, I think reclaiming it now was going to be very, very difficult because when it comes to money, 
football will eat itself. And sorry for mixing the metaphors there. Look, that's certainly the case, and the Premier League has a problem with that. Um, you know, it has a history of allowing um, human rights uh, abusers to own clubs, and it's happened twice with Manchester City. Um, Premier League has been very open to foreign investment for a long time, which has worked for the Premier League. You can certainly argue that's improved um, the Premier League as a product, the amount of, of capital that's come into the game. And one of the reasons is that English football has uh, become the predominant financial force in European football is that it was easier to buy English clubs um, than it was to buy, for example, German clubs or Spanish clubs. You can't buy Barcelona. You can't buy Real Madrid. Uh, as the ownership of the club. You, people will argue that Qatar bought Barcelona for a while in terms of buying the front of their shirt and, and influence at the club, but you can't actually control them um, because of the membership structure there and, and therefore the money flowed um, to England. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I see your point, absolutely. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it's no more um, admirable to have Roman Abramovich, um, uh, who is on record in a, in a UK court case of talking about the, the, the illegal fashion uh, in which he um, took, uh, gained his, his cash in uh, Russia um, and, and eventually became Chelsea owner um, as, a, as a, a solution to some of um, his strategic um, personal issues. Um, buying a football became a, an attractive thing for him and was a successful strategy for him. I, but I think there is a, a separate argument away from this, um, you know, the, the moral debate, which is what does it do to football when you allow nation states to own clubs and nation states with essentially unlimited financial resource? Um, because it, it, it clearly distorts the market. It clearly makes it hugely more expensive for everyone to hire footballers when you have a couple of players at the top end who do not care what the budget is. They will spend whatever money is required to uh, achieve their aim of winning the European Cup. And probably the only reason that PSG and um, Manchester City haven't won the European Cup yet is um, financial fair play rules were brought in to uh, limit the spending of clubs to something resembling their, um, their, their natural revenue generating abilities. If we hadn't had those rules, um, look, for example, we wouldn't, if you're looking at Manchester City now, we're looking at this current Premier League season, we have a Premier League season which Liverpool can win the title are in position to win the title. It's their title to lose, as we say in the, on the podcast, because Manchester City did not go and spend 80 million, 90 million on a centre-back in the summer when they knew they needed one. Why didn't they do it? Because they're worried about financial fair play and they had to um, allocate the still substantial spending. The gross spend was as high as any other club in the Premier League yet again. Um, last summer, but they allocated it to a right-back and a holding midfielder. If we didn't have financial fair play rules, they'd have bought the centre-back as well, and they'd probably have bought Jean Felix too, um, and taken the, the, you know, the best young talent in the game um, for the €120 million Euros and outbid Atletico on, on, uh, on his uh, salary. And if, if you let that go on indefinitely, 
um, football just then becomes a game of, of which nation state has the biggest pockets. That, that would be the, the, the medium-term result of saying, we don't care where the money comes from and we don't care how much money you spend. Just go ahead and do it. One final point on this, um, which I think is salient uh, to the discussion. Uh, we can see with the um, case of the 2022 World Cup award to Qatar, that people in positions of power, uh, especially football governance, and by, I mean FIFA in particular, um, who could take a moral stance for football and on behalf of football supporters and say, no, no, this is something that we can't have, we don't want, have proven themselves to be easily bought off with that same cash. <laughs> so um, there's your yes. problem. Yeah, look, um, who's the head of FIFA? Gianni Infantino, who is talking to Abu Dhabi and Saudi Arabia about funding a Club World Cup, Cup. Yeah. Uh, that would great, generate huge extra revenue for FIFA and would cement, as a result, Gianni Infantino's position as president of uh, world football. Because he's bringing in extra billions to FIFA. And of course, I'm sure he's on a bonus for that as well. So the circle is not broken, certainly not yet. However, it is that time of the week, your favourite time of the week for some of you, that's for sure, when we present the Donkey Award um, and we give you uh, categories, of course, as well as the, what the award's for, and then Duncan gets to choose the winner. Um, this week, we have decided to go um, in the spirit of the UK general election and the ridiculous mutterings of one Jacob Rees-Mogg he will be the subject of the award, the Jacob Reese Mogg Award for patronising poor people. If you want to make the connection, just Google him and you'll find out what he said uh, rather stupidly earlier this week. But we're going to transfer it to footballers because that's what we do. I'm just going to open up the golden envelope, Duncan. Hang on a second. There we go. And I've got three nominations for the Jacob Reese Mogg Award for patronising poor people. The first one is someone who's appeared on, I think, on this before, the great Pierre van Hooydonk, formerly of Celtic, Nottingham Forest, AC Milan, PSV Eindhoven. He's one of those players that's an answer to a quiz question, which is which players have played for five clubs which have won the European Cup but not won the European Cup themselves? And Pierre van Hooydonk is the answer to one of those questions. You can work out the other two clubs. Um, who famously said during a contract negotiation with Celtic in 1996... When he received the offer, he said, £7,000 a week is fine for a homeless person, but not for an international footballer. Now, this is also 1996, people. Just think about seven grand a week at that time. And they're poor homeless people who apparently it'd be OK for them. I'm sure they'd agree. Our second nomination is <clears throat> Ashley Cole, of course, uh, ended up being Cashley as a result of this particular quote from the autobiography uh, when he was offered a new deal at Arsenal. Um, he said, and I quote, when I heard my agent repeat the figure of 55 grand per week, I nearly swerved off the road. He's taking the piss, Jonathan. I yelled down the phone. I was trembling with anger. That was in 2006. And uh, third on the list is a, <laughs> a man who's very familiar with the Donkey Award nominations, that has to be said. Uh, John Terry, now assistant manager of Aston Villa, ex of Chelsea. Uh, he is a serial offender. <laughs> it seems, in Isher for um, parking offences where he has um, 
stuck his very expensive cars and disabled bays outside of fast food outlets. So, Duncan, which of those three will you award this prestigious Jacob Rees-Mogg Award to? Um, well, I know you're desperate to get Pierre Van Hooydonk one of these awards because um, he didn't enjoy your column you wrote for, was it the Evening Times? Evening Times, indeed. Yes, and uh, and teased you about his uh, his jacket. Um, Costing more than my con- entire wardrobe. Yes, but so for that reason, Pierre Van Hooydonk doesn't win. Uh-oh. <laughs> um, I'll get Ashley one day, Cole- Pierre, don't worry. Ash- <laughs> Ashley Cole... I'll have to buy it myself. <laughs> Ashley Cole... Uh, Look, in normal circumstances, um, you'd have to give it to Ashley Cole for that. Um, I I really want to know who ghost wrote that book because I can't believe he allowed that that paragraph to to remain in or that um, Ashley Cole's agent allowed it to remain in the book. But Ashley is such a down-to-earth guy and such, um, I think, an undervalued um, player for much of his career. Um, I don't think he got the credit. Um, for being as good as he was for for a good chunk of a career, and partly because of that, um, the way he left Arsenal, that I'm I'm going to let him off with this one, and uh, I think we have to give it to um, John Terry for his um, his serial offending, and um, and we know how much John Terry loves winning trophies, so he'll be delighted to to know this is I think his fourth fourth award, is it? I, well, I can, I can hear him sticking his shin guards in as you speak. <laughs> What was one of the outlets you, you, you told me before? The Kebab and Burger place. Uh, the Kebab and Burger House on the High Street in Escher. Um, and then his previous offence One of Escher's was, finest eateries, I'm told. Was outside the Pizza Express in 2008. So, um... mm. Oh, well. Well done, John Terry. A fourth, which is a record... Um, that no one has yet to exceed. Um, Captain, leader, kebab house legend. <laughs> kebab house legend. Brilliant. <laughs> Excellent. You have been listening to Wednesday's Transfer Window podcast, which, of course, we answer your questions. But it doesn't stop there. You want to keep the debate going, and you know that we love to engage with you on Twitter and social media, then just contact us at Transfer Podcast is our main account, or individually at Duncan Castles or at Garbo SJ. If you uh, want to continue the debate, please do. And of course, send in your questions at any point in the next week for next Wednesday's Q&A. If you like what you've heard, and we know thousands of you do, just get onto iTunes, give us a five-star review. And as you know, the whole community gets bigger and therefore the debate gets bigger and more interesting, although it's hard to see how much more interesting it could get. We will be back with you for Friday's podcast. Until then, we'll see you through the transfer window. Thanks for listening.